Today from the Global Lane, six months of protests and new allegations of government atrocities against Iranian citizens. There are reports of raping and beating young girls and boys in prisons. And these are just like 14-year-old, 16-year-old and 18-year-old children. Security threat? Treated as a terrorist for speaking against LGBT advocacy in her daughter's elementary school. My entire life has been uprooted. I don't even feel comfortable and safe going out in my community the way that they portrayed me. An historic alliance made in Moscow, but cuts in the U.S. defense budget and entitlements may come to reduce the ballooning deficit. We're in trouble. We've never sustained deficits and debt levels like this before, except perhaps in World War II. And the biggest killer of Americans between the ages of 18 and 45. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Six months of protests in Iran and six months of atrocities against men, women and children. A new report from Amnesty International details the horrific beatings, torture and rape of protest detainees, even children as young as 12 years old. Joining us with more to discuss how the Ayatollah and other Iranian government officials are treating citizens who are demanding freedom in their country is Tamine Debazorgi. She fled Iran for the United States. She's now a law school student and speaker with the Dissident Project. Tamine, uh, many of the atrocities detailed by Amnesty International are just too disturbing to mention here, but they include electric shocks to genitalia, hanging children by scarves tied around their necks, sodomizing boys and women with pipes. I mean, these are things told to Amnesty International by Iranians they've interviewed. So what are your sources inside Iran telling you? Well, since 1979, Iran has been a dystopia. After 40 years of tyrannical rule, the Iranian Gen Z population is leading this fight against the Islamic Republic regime. They stand in front of bullets and they raise their voice for freedom. And I hear very horrific details about what is going on in the country as well. As you mentioned, there are reports of poisoning girls in high schools. Uh, there are reports of raping and beating young girls and boys in prisons. And these are just like 14-year-old, 16-year-old and 18-year-old children. They're not adults. And all they did was to go out and demand freedom. They want a better life. They want access to internet. They want economic freedom. And they want this regime to be gone. The government says it's released more than 80,000 people. It's giving amnesty to more than 22,000 detainees. So what do you make of all that? Well, there are two sides of this issue. First of all, the Iranian officials are not credible sources. They have lied uh, compulsive. Uh, they're compulsive liars. They have uh, used like false data in the past. However, on the other hand, if we trust this number and say that they are correct. That shows how big the scale of this protest has been, that they have released thousands of people and there are still many more in prisons based on the information that we have received from sources in Iran. Is that what all younger Iranians are demanding, more freedom or is their goal regime change? You know, a few years ago, young Iranians were demanding some reforms, but then they, we realized that it's just not going to work out because the, the fundamentals of this government is just against human rights. So right now, the Iranian people are no longer asking for reform. The only solution to finally have a happy life and prosperity with economic freedom and social liberties is for the Islamic Republic to just be wiped off 
from the face of Iran. And we want a free democratic Iran very soon. And this is what the Iranian uh, young people uh, and also uh, even older generations are demanding. And that's why we're seeing such mass protests, not just in Iran, but also across uh, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, New York, and every major city in Europe. Yeah, a lot of Iranians have, uh, are very active in the U.S. Uh, you wrote an opinion column that appeared in the Orange County Register when the protests started last September. Now, six months have passed. A lot of Americans wonder, what is our government doing about it? So how should President Biden and Congress respond? The United States doesn't have a very good track record of helping Iranian freedom fighters. So the Iranian people... One thing that mostly concerns them is that the Biden administration goes back to nuclear talks with the Islamic Republic regime, because that will allow the Islamic Republic to use leverages against the U.S. government and get more access to frozen funds and dollars that uh, U.S. currently blocks. And access to that money allows the Islamic regime to fund its terrorist activities, not just in Iran, but also in other countries. So the Iranian people are very scared of uh, the Biden administration going back to nuclear talks. The other thing is that members of Congress, they represent over a million Iranians in the United States who are American citizens. They have to listen to their constituents. They have to listen to them, to their demands, which is we don't want to go back to a nuclear deal. We want the U.S. government to talk to its allies and ensure that the, they also fire the diplomats from their countries. They have to cut ties with the Islamic regime because this government does not represent the Iranian people. They have no legitimacy and the world has to stop treating them as a legitimate ruler of Iran. And quickly, what do you think uh, is going to happen now? Will these continue or are they going to protest fizzle out? Well, the economy is imploding. The situation in the country is not stable. And the Gen Z is very motivated. They are fighting. They know what they want. This is different from anything we've seen before. The scale is much larger. So I am very hopeful that that if the Biden administration and also other Western countries stand with Iranian people, we will see change very soon. Okay, dissident project speaker Tamine Debezorgi. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Treated like a terrorist and labeled a security threat, a New Jersey mother is filing a lawsuit against her local police chief and the U.S. military over a social media post. Angela Reading wrote about her objections to sexually explicit material posted in the hallway of her children's elementary school. Angela and Thomas More Society Special Counsel Christopher Ferrara are here to explain more about the lawsuit and what led up to it. Angela, briefly give us a summation of what you noticed in the school hallway that upsets you and then what you posted on social media about it. Sure. Thanks for having us. So while at math night with my, at that time, six and seven-year-old daughters, um, while we were walking through the hallways, right in the main entrance of the school was an entire wall colored with very, very colorful student-made posters. From a distance, they didn't seem like an issue. The closer you got, though, you could see that um, most of the posters contained um, gender and sexual flags. 
representations. And in addition to that, the actual words like polysexuality, pansexuality, agender, and terms that, quite frankly, I didn't even know the meaning of. So that was really concerning to me. And I reached out to the school, a school board member, as well as one of the parents of the students who made the posters. And essentially everyone told me that this was something that I had to accept in the public education system and that my kids will be exposed to this on social media and on the playground. So essentially to get over it. I was not happy with the response, so I posted on a parent advocacy page of Facebook groups with like-minded parents my concerns, and I stated essentially that I thought this was not age-appropriate. It went against what I believed I wanted my kids to be learning, but I also prefaced that all people are deserving of love and respect and that this wasn't against individuals or a particular group of people. Tell us about the response you received that led to this lawsuit. So I just do wanna be clear, they weren't teaching my my kids um, about pansexuality and polysexuality. This was a student project my kids did not participate in. Um, so thank goodness. <laughs> um, the response that I got was something that when I tell people, it's really hard to imagine. So not, not only did was there, you know, the mob of people trying to cancel me, which is, you know, it just happens. But I had a response from the United States military and our local police force that labeled me a security threat, um, pretty much coerced my social media posts to come down and then reported me to local and federal and state agencies as essentially a terrorist. Christopher, explain this for us. I, I don't understand what the thinking was, a security threat for a social media post? If you look at the post itself, it couldn't be more innocuous. It's a plain vanilla observation by a school mom with two kids about the inappropriateness of this material being posted very prominently in a, an upper elementary school hallway. And this is an example of what's going on in public schools throughout the country, the hypersexualization of impressionable children. She objected to it in the most reasonable fashion. And what happened after that almost defies belief. We have personnel at the local military base pressuring local police chief to remove the post as if it were some sort of criminal or quasi-criminal activity, the police chief contacts the Facebook administrator, essentially tells her in, um, in substance that if it's not removed, there will be violence at the school and she could be liable for incitement to violence based on an innocuous Facebook post. Well, suitably intimidated, the Facebook administrator removes the post and then the police chief reports back to the military-based personnel that he succeeded in getting it taken down, and he will see if he can get other posts by Angela Redding taken down. And then this was followed, as Angela indicated, by a systematic attempt to turn her over to various state and federal authorities for investigation as essentially a domestic terrorist. And we see that this is a development at the federal level with this new term, stochastic terrorism, that they're tossing around. A stochastic terrorist is basically someone of conservative views who publishes an opinion that, rightly enough, causes people to be upset about what the person is reporting. And the theory is if someone is upset about what the person is reporting and commits violence, you're responsible for that.
Many people would say, well, just let this drop. You know, there wasn't real damage here. What's the real issue here, in your opinion, beyond someone saying you're a security threat for expressing your view? My entire life has been uprooted. When all this was taking place, I had, I'm in law school, I had to stop going to school, not take my exams, which plummeted my GPA. I had to pull myself, my student, my kids from school during that time period for their safety. And I now don't feel safe with them even going back to that school, given how so many members of the community and the superintendent participated in this cancellation um, and portrayal as me as a security threat. So now I need to send my kids to a, a private school for their safety. Not only that, I was forced to resign from the school board for the safety of my children and also th so that I had a, an ability to um, file litigation to protect my civil rights. So this has completely uprooted my professional career. I was supposed to be working for a law firm representing school boards. So, so there are damages far outreaching that will follow me throughout my entire life. I don't even feel comfortable and safe going out in my community the way that they portrayed me. I've lost friends that don't talk to me who actually believed the things that were being said. And this theory only operates against parents with conservative views. We have, an, we have a two-tier system of justice in this country. We've seen it again and again under the current administration, and this is just another example of this. Angela, what do you uh, want to see happen here? The reason that, that I'm pursuing this litigation is because somebody needs to stand up to this government corruption and censorship, and I want to be that person, and I hope that it exposes the widespread, you know, and pervasive... I would say censorship and labeling of parents as terrorists throughout our country. I'm not the only person. This has been something throughout the news over the past, well, since the Biden administration. Okay, it's in federal court, so we'll see where this ends up. Angela Reading and Christopher Ferrara, thank you for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. Thank you. An historic meeting in Moscow this week as Chinese President Xi Jinping met with Russian President Putin. Political observers warn of a strengthening anti-American alliance. At the same time, some members of Congress propose cutting the U.S. defense budget. So how would that affect military readiness? And what about out-of-control spending in Washington? Well, here to share his perspective is Young Voices commentator, associate professor of economics at Texas Tech University. Alexander Salter. Dr. Salter, good to talk with you again. You pointed out in your recent article that our national debt is unsustainable, averaging $2 trillion per year for the next 10 years. So what would that mean for our economy and this nation if nothing's done to stop Congress and the president from overspending? It means in brief that we're in trouble. We've never sustained deficits and debt levels like this before, except perhaps in World War II. If you look at deficits, how much in excess we're spending over revenue each year, those were slightly higher during World War II than they are today. But when you look at the gross level of public debt, the actual debt held by the public, that's larger today as a percentage of the economy than it was during the Second World War. It was about 112% of GDP in 1945. It's more than 120% today. Some members of Congress are proposing reductions in the defense budget. Instead of increasing it to Biden's proposed $842 billion level, they want to revert to the 2022 level, about $780 billion. So what do you think of that idea? 
I think given the current geopolitical circumstances, we'd better think long and hard before we actually propose cutting the defense budget. Everybody talks about trimming waste. Everybody understands that there's probably fat that we can get rid of somewhere. The problem is that waste is not a line item. It's not obvious what we cut. And what ends up getting cut is inevitably going to be the result of the political process. Let's put some things into perspective. All discretionary spending, which includes defense spending, is going to be about 6% of GDP this year. Entitlement spending, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, that's going to be in excess of 15% of GDP this year. That's almost three times as big. When we look for the money that has to be cut somewhere in terms of basic fiscal unsustainability, it's got to come from the entitlement programs, which as of right now have a negative $100 trillion liability in terms of the present discounted value of all the money that we know we're going to have to pay. These programs are not going to sustain themselves. As a matter of statute law, there's going to be sudden and painful cuts to Social Security in under 10 years when the trust fund runs out. We can either reform these programs now in a responsible fashion, or we can drive ourselves off the fiscal cliff. That's where the money has to be cut as a basic matter of arithmetic. Yeah, it, it looks like uh, it's just uh, tw $20 trillion we're talking about uh, in the next 10 years for Social Security alone. Uh, not to mention Medicare and other programs. So overall, President Biden's proposed a fiscal year 2024 budget of nearly $7 trillion. He says we'll pay for it by increasing payroll taxes on Americans earning more than 400000 So does his math add up? What do you think? It doesn't add up. The assumptions behind that budget are unduly rosy. He grossly overestimates Americans' tolerance for paying the kinds of taxes necessary to fund his welfare warfare state. It's just not going to happen. The United States government does not have a taxing problem. Right now, tax revenues as a percentage of GDP are about as high as they've ever been. Over the last 30 or 40 years, they've fluctuated between 14% and 19%. As I said in my recent article, we need to be prudent about this. 20% of GDP is a hard ceiling in terms of the revenues as a percentage of GDP that we can expect from taxes. We're just not going to squeeze any more out of the economy than that which means that in order to get our spending and debt problems under control, we have to come from the other side of the ledger. We need to rein in spending growth. We need to make at minimum, we need to make sure that the rate at which federal spending grows is slower than the rate of economic growth, give the tax base a little bit of a chance to catch up with our monster spending. If we don't do that, then we aren't serious about budgeting. We aren't serious about paying our way. And I would contend that we aren't ultimately serious about self-governance. This is something that we expect every American household to do, to budget. Why can't the federal government do it? Alexander Salter, thank you for providing those insights. We appreciate you. Thank you very much. As the Biden administration prepares to end the country's COVID-19 emergency, perhaps the president should declare a new emergency. This time, an emergency to mobilize people and financial resources to combat the nation's fentanyl crisis. More than 70,000 Americans died in 2021 from fentanyl overdoses. It's now the leading cause of death in the United States for people between the ages of 18 and 45. More than suicide, cancer, car accidents, and COVID-19. And the fentanyl crisis has claimed the lives of teens, like 15-year-old Melanie Ramos of Los Angeles. She died from a fentanyl overdose last summer, thinking she was taking a Percocet pill. And Hannah Elise of Colorado, who died a year ago last December at the age of 16. And this young adult had enough fentanyl in his system to kill 16 people. 
Well, I could go on, but this is more than just a list of names. These are young Americans, their lives stolen away, cut short because they made a mistake and took a deadly pill. Folks, if we still have a national emergency in place for COVID-19 and more people are dying from fentanyl overdoses, don't you think we should declare an emergency and wage war on this opioid drug assault on our nation? Remember late last month when Mother Rebecca Kiesling gave her emotional testimony before the House Homeland Committee? The Rochester Hills, Michigan mother lost her two sons, Caleb and Kyler, ages 20 and 18, after they died from taking fentanyl. They mistakenly thought they were taking Percocet. My children were taken away from me. A hundred thousand Americans every year are having their children, 200,000 because it's both parents, right? Are having their children taken away from them. This should not be politicized. It's not about race. Fentanyl doesn't care about race. This is a war. Act like it, do something. Although Mexican President Obrador denies it, we know the Mexican drug cartels and the Biden administration's open-door policy are mostly to blame. But, folks, I agree with Obrador when he says American families should accept blame. Not all of the blame, but some of it. The Mexican president's comments were taken out of context. Here's what Obrador said that wasn't reported. He said, quote, there's a lot of disintegration of families. There is a lot of individualism. There's a lack of love, of brotherhood, of hugs and embraces. That is why U.S. officials should be dedicating funds to address the causes. I agree. Parents, you need to be more involved in your teenagers' lives and more aware of what they are doing and who their friends are. And our president and Congress need to show more love and concern for the American people. If you're my age, a bit older or younger, you may remember President Ronald Reagan's war on drugs. It was a serious effort to strike at the heart of the Colombian cartels, while at the same time waging a domestic Just Say No campaign in the United States. Just say no. Instead of teaching children about the politically correct pronouns they should use, how to change their biological sex, or Heather's two mommies, why not educate them at a young age about the dangers of drugs and to just say no? Those steps, along with parental involvement, would make a world of difference. Reducing demand for drugs in the U.S. would save lives and put the Mexican cartels out of business. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB Channel, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.